Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson. Welcome to The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me each week on The Crime Couch for a rollicking, intriguing tale. It'll be one heck of a journey. Roy Malloy is an author of 10 books with a focus on true crime and a bygone era. He's written about West Australia's notorious Lunar Park and more recently published Squizzy the Biography about the infamous villain Squizzy Taylor. Squizzy's biography took Roy seven years of research and reading some 30,000 newspaper articles. He managed to get unique insights about the man from Squeezy's own 97-year-old daughter and descendants of Dolly Gray, one of Australia's most infamous madams. Roy's also a circus performer of some note. He's known as Australia's Circus King. In fact, he's secured world records for walking on the tallest stilts, the bed of nails and fire breathing. I'm sitting with Roy on the crime couch on a very sunny day in Melbourne's Apollo Theatre. Hi Roy, thanks very much for sitting with me on the crime couch today. Thrilled to be here. I really I love your show. Roy, for people who don't know, and you can't ever assume knowledge of course, who was Squizzy Taylor? Do you know, it's a, it's a fascinating one and I think the reason I've begun doing what I do is... Uh, I, I first came across the name Squizzy Taylor when I was about, I think, 10 years old. I, I was raised in Hong Kong and China. My parents were brought us up there as missionaries. And we were watching a television program and uh, Al Capone was featured. And my dad made a very flippant comment. He said, oh, you know, we had a, a version of that in Australia. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, Squizzy Taylor. And when I heard that name, it had this uh, a flamboyance beyond Al Capone. Al Capone, it's an Italian name, it's two real names, but Squizzy isn't a name. And it had this theatrical kind of stage name presence, but it's got this sinister undertone. Like, you hear the Cray twins, you know, or Ned Kelly. Well, yeah, even then, but you see the mask of Ned, Ned Kelly and you get this theatre with it. Squizzy Taylor. It had this stage name property and I was, I was always fascinated. And so then, in doing that, I, I kind of travelled with that my whole life. And I hit about 17 or 18, and I, I've just always had a passionate love for history. My family history as much as anything. My mum's family are Indigenous, um, and it was very brushed under the carpet. So a big part of my love was researching that. And also then when I was at, at the libraries, microfiche. And if, if you're under 20, Google microfiche <laughs> um, and scrolling through anything about Squizzy Taylor. And it really, it wasn't easy to find in the first instance, and catalogues were such that, you know... And so then when you skip forward, I, I had access to a webpage called Trove. Trove is a webpage that has a list of every Australian newspaper, more or less, ever printed uh, through the National Library, and you can punch in anything, and it will bring up every newspaper article. I did that just more or less to answer the same question, who was Squizzy Taylor, and very quickly realised why no one's written anything about Squizzy Taylor. 30, or I think about 50,000 newspaper articles come up instantly that are directly related. Then if you extrapolate and have the articles that link to Squizzy in some way or another, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of newspaper articles. Okay, so let's find, let's get the direct response then. Who was Squizzy Taylor? 
Squizzy Taylor was probably three things. The actual person that he was, which is what I was trying to cover in the biography, is a very simple story. But I don't think Joseph Leslie Theodore Taylor would have much knowledge himself by the middle of his career, even the beginning of his career, wouldn't have much knowledge of who he was and then who the theatre of Squizzy Taylor was. He invented part of it himself, but the media absolutely jumped on it to have, really to have a homegrown Al Capone. And they were aware of it. He was aware of who Al Capone was by the middle of his career. But yeah, he was lots of things. He was an enigma as well. He was also a villain of some note, wasn't he? I mean, what's your fascination with the man, Roy? He, again, it begins just trying to answer the question, who was Squizzy Taylor? Because I had that given to me as a child and then wanted to know who he was. But the further I went down that rabbit hole, the more I realised I don't know who he is. Even at the back end of writing this book, it gives you a fair idea, but you can just keep digging on that subject. So Squizzy Taylor begins his life born in uh, Melbourne, uh, down the, sa- the the kind of southeastern suburbs near Brighton. His dad was a wheelwright, and they, br- they were doing quite well. So with the um, the help of one of the, the historical societies, we found a photo probably of, of a three or four-year-old Squizzy standing out the front of this wheelwright's shop with dad, a brother Claude, a sister, and the family was probably very comfortable. It was like being a Ferrari dealer in that day. Mm-hmm. The, we forget very quickly, there was a horrific economic crash in the 1890s, and Squizzy's born in 1888. Now, let's remember, Ned Kelly is hung only nine years before that. Ned Kelly's very present. So that, that's like me remembering Chopper Reed to my children. Do you know, he's very present in the life of Squizzy. Mm. There are still bush rangers at that time and place. Flinders Lane isn't paved until 1915. So the time Squizzy's born, horses are the only transport, and Dad goes belly up with his business in the middle of the 1890s. Dad dies in 1901 and places Squizzy at 11 or 12 years old. But we have an account of Squizzy walking along the bank of the Yarra and a copper sees him and he's 9 or 10, maybe 11, but he's a very small boy. The family is small, but they're probably malnourished as well. So you get this tiny, tiny child. He's got a gunny sack, which is a Hessian sack made for potatoes. And this cop watches this kid walking suspiciously along the river. He looks around and he turfs out the contents of the sack into the river and walks off. Copper grabs him, goes into the river, and look, he pulls out a jam jar, a hammer, some, some just normal things, but Squizzy will not talk. So they get him to the police station. Mum and Dad pick him up. They say, we can't help you. But the, the account says Squizzy doesn't talk to the police. And it draws a picture of a kid very quickly who's had police interactions that aren't positive. Yeah. Dad's died. Mum farms out her 10 children to various relatives but the three oldest are a daughter called Queenie who nicks off at 12 never comes back never associates with the family after that the older brother Claude is an absolute psychopath now I don't know what's happened to him I have no evidence whether there's violence in the home at an early age which it would appear to there's only one reference to that by the Truth magazine very late in Squeezie's life but Truth are renowned for being anything but (laughs) But Squizzy is raised more or less by his older brother. Now, the older brother, in the research that I did, one of the family came forward and said, I'm a distant second cousin through one of the sisters. Originally, Squizzy was the name, you'd you'd say, I'm taking a look, taking a squiz, and these guys were into everything. It overlapped at that time as an expression for I'm taking a piss, taking a squiz, you're a little piss, you're a little shit. And the older brother got that for always being in on everything. He was brutal. 
I mean, like, this guy loved to hurt people. And he was the original Squizzy Taylor. Leslie Taylor that we know as Squizzy was sent away to Bendigo where Dad was from. His grandparents were gold miners there. And he it really begins as a Bendigo story. So he's in Bendigo living in a, a reformed Methodist's home, the minister's home, a boy's home. And I'm going to have to say probably disciplined with the cane very heavily. But that, that church had a lot of theatre productions. And they taught him high literacy for his age and that, that generation. So it kind of spits out this kid who's made ward of the state and then at 16, they said, off you go, you're done now. That's all the care we're giving you. And then we start seeing him in newspapers. Now, you don't get a, a police record before they're 18. They're expunged at 18. But we do see him in the newspapers because they're talking about the crimes he's tried for. So you, you get a kid who's doing just petty things over and over again. But he more or less flees Bendigo to come back to Melbourne following a mate who he was travelling with at that time. He's rough looking. There's a mugshot of him when he's 18 and he's he's got shaved number one. He, he looks rough. And it's only when he comes back to Melbourne and he th- there's a lot of talk of him being a member of a push gang. Now, a push gang is literally what it sounds like. You're walking down the street, you walk through a mob of kids who are standing around on a corner. Remember, there's no technology, there's no radio even. So they, they most of them don't read. They literally congregate in a corner. And you walk between them, one will push you, more will push you, you'll hit the ground, they'll kick you, take everything on you. There's a lot of talk that he belonged to a group known as the Burke Street Rats. I published a book called Push Gangs. Um, the Burke Street Rats, uh, Rats, they had no hierarchy, there was no leader, there was no... It was a title given to any waif that was a thief or pickpocket of any age on Burke Street. But look, he was associated, but he and his brother and a bunch of mates absolutely roamed an area on Young Street in uh, Fitzroy, where the Rainbow Hotel is now. Um, they brutalised a young man with steel pipes and you, you paint a picture of an early Squizzy Taylor with his brother. His brother's belting this guy with a steel pipe and nearly killing him with their mates and Squizzy standing back holding a pistol. But you note he's holding it. He loves this image of wearing beautiful clothes and wielding a pistol. Okay. We've got a great image and you've given us a great background on him. He was a small man with a very big attitude. Let's jump to his crime exploits. Where did his income come from? Absolutely. Probably violent crime. And his older brother nicks off and heads up to Sydney where he hangs around with the husband of Tilly Devine, Norman Brunn. And Snowy Cutmore comes and goes around this time. Now, Snowy's a very significant name you probably need to keep note of. And there's two others that appear shortly that are a part of this set, a click. You first see really Squizzy and how he makes his money when he appears in Bendigo again. And he's arrested with off the back of an explosion uh, that takes place in what was once the holding cells of the Bendigo CIB. And it's now a printing press. The Bendigo races are on. And this guy has made now a five-year career for himself pickpocketing people at the races. And it's easy enough to do because there was um, less observation of people's personal space in that generation and era. And to be lining up for something, you'd often bump into someone. I would never do that now. But in that day, that was normal. And in bumping up against you, you lose the contents of your pocket. So that, that's he's a pickpocket. But he'll often, in this, in this arrest, he's arrested in the home of a lady called Dolly Gray. In the news reports and of the court case, the judge says to her, you own this, how do you own this house? 
becomes apparent. She's a madam and a very, very good at it. She has a, a brothel that she runs, but in this house is an, is an elite group of the most violent criminals in Melbourne and Squizzy. And you've got to add him last because he's not capable of anything. So he, he begins his pattern of attracting people who, I don't know how he does it, but these are guys who do not need him. Maybe it's because he's pinky in the brain, he's the brain, and he comes up with the ideas, but they all get tried together and let off. So he's making his money from making these goons bash people, take money, and so forth. So you skip forward a few more years, and we really see the beginning of his career where he starts... Now, he breaks apart, really, from others. Now, his name's nothing if he doesn't break apart. There's heaps of guys with great nicknames, but they're just thugs or they're just guys who mug you squizzy breaks apart because he wants to stand back probably because he has to he's little but he breaks apart by organizing crime Mm. and and he's also very much involved one of the things that i found fascinating is involved in the sale of illegal liquor drugs prostitution race fixing and a protection racket and i believe he also ran a very lucrative jury fixing business is that right yeah, so it's exactly this point in the narrative that he, he organises a crime that goes horribly wrong. And now, there's conjecture. He honestly may not have done this, but I believe he did personally. And he gets a, gets a goon called Brush Thompson. And Brush is, he's pictured with Squizzy in one of the only surviving pictures that's not a mugshot of Squizzy at Luna Park. He's an ugly, really weird-looking guy. He looks like Lurch from the Adams Family. He's huge. And they've been belting guys in laneways for years, the two of them. But they come up with this plan and they make fake number plates, they hire a car, they go up to Warrandai to rob a bank manager that they know has a route on a bicycle with the day's takings from a bank. It goes wrong when they try to tell the driver of this uh, hire car, a taxi more or less, um, they say to this bloke, we're going to do this and you're in on it. Now, this guy has this guy has a really severe moral compass. His grandfather was the first premier of Victoria and they have to murder him. He, he says, look, I'm not this I'm going to dob you in more or less and they find the body and that's the first real sign we also see in the court hearing of a guy called Henry uh, Stokes now Stokes is uh, a different kind of crook he's English by birth probably has a Geordie accent and we've got to remember a lot of these guys aren't native born a lot of them are expats from England so Stokes is a smart businessman and he thinks like a business he sets up two up uh, dens more or less but he's a kind of guy who desperately wants to be around action and wants to be thought of as a tough man and he's he gets there in the end but at this stage in his career he's kind of a he's desperate to be in on it squizzy never misses an opportunity he sees any person's willingness as a resource he can tap into so then there's this five-year period where squizzy's put on head of security detail um, on Goodwood Street in Richmond, uh, and this unique bit of real estate where Stokes rents a house, guts out all the walls. And, you know, we see Underbelly has that Squizzy Taylor edition, and you see Henry Stokes painted as a debonair, well-dressed guy, and the, the two-up rooms are opulent and beautiful. They weren't. They were... There was no, no flooring. There were backless pews with a scrap of carpet in the middle, and they throw the coins and hit the ground, and they call the two-up game. Um... People would piss in the corners. It was a really rough place. And you'd get shot in the foot as a warning pretty quickly. Um, and they also had... They're still surviving tunnels. Um, there's Dr. Chris McConville has a, a great knowledge of where the, the tunnels are in, in Richmond that still survive from these houses to escape from. It's about that time we really start to see Squizzy when they break apart through the Fitzroy Vendetta. Okay, so let's... 
I'm what I'm really fascinated is also about his nickname. Now, was it there was you know rumours squizzy because he had a squint in his left eye, and others said it was because he had a droopy left eyelid. Um, and I believe he had some other sort of nicknames as well. Is that right? There's a couple of nicknames and a couple of sources. The only other book outside of the book I published is written by a fellow called Hugh Anderson, and it's called Larrikin Crook. Look, it's a great book, and again, he faced the same obstacle I did. That there, in publishing my book, I read more than thirty thousand newspaper articles. It took seven years. Um, Hugh was restricted to microfiche, so it would have been a, an arduous task. He he publishes a, a photo of a, a young lad called Leslie Taylor in the book, and he says in the caption, a young Leslie Taylor. It's the wrong Leslie Taylor. It is a Leslie Taylor, but there's a, so many inaccuracies. And he talks about the name Squizzy. Um, it, look, his details are everywhere. It's a great... It's a skeleton of what the story was, so I don't want to discredit him. He did a great job. The story I have is um, backed up by a couple of other um, independent reports mm-hmm. as well. Um, so, look, I do believe that is the origins of the nickname. However, I've had two different... One of the one of them is a member of the family, and another is a bloke who said, look, my grandfather was at a cards game, Squizzy arrived, and his mate said, look, that's Leslie Taylor, known as Squizzy. And it was kind of in, as he was really on the rise, not when he was infamous. Mm-hmm. He said, we've got to go. Um, and he said that he the comment he made was no one called him Squizzy to his face. There's a later account saying that he was known as... That was almost derogatory. Yeah, look, it did. It would have still had a knowledge about it. If you said that Squizzy, it would have had a knowledge of I'm going to take a squiz, take a piss, or I'm sticking my nose in where it's not belonged. And Mm. there's also that later account by Truth, and I've got to say Truth is Truth. I reckon 10% of what they write is based on a kernel of truth, but it's absolute fabrication. He actually writes a letter to the media saying not true. So in his own hand. Mm. But they say he's known as the Turk. Now, remember, that's, that's the right. time when they're going to war against the Turkish in the First World War, and that was also derogatory. Mm. And it was probably a discrediting way. That they've got to sell papers. Mm. So I don't, I don't place any stock in the name the Turk. I don't believe a single gangster ever called him that. Give me a word picture of what Squizzy, how he used to present himself, because he was also known as a bit of a dandy. He loved dressing. Uh, give me a word picture of what he would have, how he would have presented himself. He loved theatre. Now that's the, that's the primary part. You got to you got to see a picture of a kid who's probably seen the only genuine glimpses of happiness as a child, his whole childhood, only glimpses through theatre productions that he's constantly a part of. And we found these surviving records where he is an archer, like, you know, bow and arrow, as like, almost like a Cupid role in a pantomime as a child. You see several instances of him reading poetry in competitions and then bang, he's homeless. He... He, he, I don't believe there's a, a, a gay bone in his body. He's vehemently homosexual, uh, vehemently heterosexual. But you got to. There's a fascinating part here. He likes his women very, very young. You're also thinking uh, Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. He's he looks like Charlie Chaplin. He's tiny. One of the witnesses in one of the crimes says, "I looked at him and thought he was Charlie Chaplin." But he pairs up with a, a young girl later called Ida. Pender and Ida was possibly fifth, just turning 16 when she paired up. They commit a crime together and the newspapers say if we if we caught her at that time she'd have to be tried as a child in the children's court. So we're talking creepy territory even by their standards when he's in his 30s. Mm-hmm. But Squizzy loves the theatre and also 
I believe part of his crime committing is the theatre of the energy that you get, the rush of the adrenaline. He loves being in court. Now, I, some people, anybody that's been to court knows, even if as, as a policeman who's done the right thing, it's traumatic, it's stressful at the best of times. But he's, he's committing crimes on such a prolific daily rotation and not getting caught for all of them. But the, the amount he gets caught for, there are some days in his career where he's in court three times in the same day, criminal court in the morning, coroner's court in the afternoon, city court at night for completely unrelated crimes. And he, he seems to relish them. Occasionally you see him stressed, but you see a guy and they, they say he's got a deep voice, one of the newspaper articles, clear and present voice. And he's so small. You often think jockeys have that almost distinctive sound to their voice. He's got a low timbre in his voice. He presents confidently. But clothing in that generation, often you'd get people that would own two suits and then some day wear. Mm. This guy, because hand, hand stitching is 80% of clothing in that time. So no, no sewing machines even. You look at the seams of any clothing that's done with a needle and thread, and he's got these beautiful suits he's arrested at one point well, no, so he's not arrested when he goes on the run the police get to an apartment and I'll, I'll give you another name is Albert McDonald Albert should go down in history as the third player in this story but I'll get to that and they bust in on Albert's bed uh, bedroom he's got a pistol under his pillow and there's a trunk in the corner of Squizzy's possessions and literally the window's open <laughs> that's how close it was but they find all these self-portraits of him self-portraits they bust in on a house he's living in and arrest him and they they comment all these self-portraits on the wall of him he loves looking at himself that this is part of who he is mm-hmm. and i love the fact that he had such a or it was fascinating that he had such a turbulent personal life as well like he was at one stage married to a gangster's mole and occasional prostitute called dolly gray uh, I think there was questions as to whether or not that was legal. And then he also married uh, Ida Jazz Baby Pender, the jazz dancer. I mean, uh, how would you sum up his personal life, Roy? He Look, it's fascinating. His, his relationship with Dolly Gray begins when he's just out of teen years and he meets her in Bendigo. She's a bit older than him, but she's a woman of means. She's got money. Um, she appears in the newspapers at 15 when her dad reports her missing to the police. And sh- so she's turbulent as well. Um, she's a South Melbourne b- girl born just off Clarendon Street. And she, parents are English, so they're expats as well, you know. So she um, presents him a place to live whenever he needs it. He pres- She presents him probably money. He, look, she's a prostitute before he knows her, but he has this ability to want to ramp things up. She takes a place in little Lonsdale Street by about 1914 um, and we see a story where he's threatening to belt the neighbour's wife because she's in his face about what's going on next door um, and this is immediately leading up to the Fitzroy Vendetta now we see a guy there where they are legally married and there's a historian called Deb Robinson and Deb is the curator of the Geelong Prison Museum and one of the greatest minds of Australian criminal history that exists. Um, she, I, I looked for years and could not find... It, it, originally I said they were not married. She got in touch because of the book and said, oh, they, they were. She said, you've just got to look for Charlotte Haynes. Now, I found Haynes, I couldn't find Charlotte... She hid her name, and they all did. Um, that it was a way of getting around the law, obviously. But she, they were married, but she had two daughters who were possibly also being prostituted out of this, this location in Little, little Lonsdale. And she was married to a guy who was an abusive, um, probably alcoholic guy. He died in the First World War, so it's perfect timing, and then she marries Squizzy. 
she names her two daughters, um, their last name is O'Donoghue. She names them O'Donoghue slash Taylor. So it's, it's, it's very family. They're really committed. But as a result of the, the vendetta, she does just vanish, and there's very good reason for that. Okay. And, look, I'm very sorry because it feels like we've only just scratched the surface today, Roy. But, look, let's definitely get you back on the crime catch and we can talk further about Squeezy Taylor and about the Fitzroy vendetta. But, look, thank you very much, Roy, for sitting with me on the crime couch today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on the crime couch. <laughs>